Hello, and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Today, we are going to be talking about work and mental health in a pandemic with our guest, Sarah Johnson. And as we're recording this, it happens to be Bell Let's Talk Day. That is not a plug for Bell, but it is a time of the year where this is a very relevant conversation here at the end of January. Sarah, our guest, is a registered psychotherapist in private practice. Her passion to work with people is what led her to pursue an education in psychology and then in clinical counseling. She has over 12 years experience in psychotherapy and community mental health, where she's provided individual and family therapy. She's a clinical member of the Canadian Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, and her current opportunities include treatment of depression, anxiety, and preparing people to return to work after absences, including injuries sustained from motor vehicle accidents and individuals who have been on long-term disability leave. She has a particular interest in exploring and treating trauma, and although she approaches the clinical work in an integrated way, she leans toward attachment, psychodynamic, mindfulness, and narrative approaches. Sarah joins us from Halton Hills, Ontario. Sarah, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be able to have a discussion about some important things. Yeah, Yeah, we're really excited for this one. Excellent. Well, why don't we just start off? um, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a psychotherapist? Yeah, definitely. I think um, my background was always working with people. I was always interested in kind of those kinds of helper roles. And um, I, after doing my degree at U of T in psychology, was at a crossroads of like, what do I do now? (laughs) Where should I go? Um, That I think a lot of people can relate to. And Mm -hmm. so I decided to pick up and I moved to Vancouver Island. I worked out on a, in a, at a camp, a residential camp for kids during the summer. And I met a man who was a clinical uh, counselor in BC. That's their phrase in BC. And um, he made such an impression on me. He was a mentor, uh, supervisor for me that summer. And the way that he thought about things, the way that he approached people, the way that he took the time to listen. I just, I mean, I was such an impressionable, at an impressionable age. And uh, so I maybe maybe a bit on a whim decided to apply to counseling programs and uh, was accepted into a three-year program for clinical counseling. And then from there worked in internships and community mental health for a number of years, took a leave of absence to be with my kids when they were little. And then after that uh, opened a private practice. So it's been I think at times kind of risky and kind of scary, (laughs) Um, but also at the same time, so rewarding. And I could not imagine myself doing anything but what I'm doing. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And it's really cool for our listeners to hear too, because we have people at all different stages of their career who are (laughs) making decisions and taking on risks at some point. And we have questions about that a little bit later on, but it's really cool. So thanks for sharing your story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. So today we're talking about work and mental health, and this is an area of our lives that seems to be shifting really rapidly through this pandemic. We seem to be going through a lot of peaks and valleys. I know that, you know, I have, I know that a lot of people that I know have. So as a practitioner, what are some of the most common challenges you're seeing people face when it comes to this topic? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think exactly, you know, it's, 
exactly that, that it is so rapidly changing. We are having to turn on a dime in so many ways to like, what next, what now? Um, and I, that really takes a toll on people's uh, sense of certainty, their sense of familiarity. Um, I think that ever shifting changes has led to rethinking everything from like, how do I go to the grocery store? Um, how do I do Christmas? <laughs> you know, how do I? Um, so things that used to be so, so familiar, so without thinking automatic have now become really draining. And all of that takes a toll on our um, cerebral energy. And all of that leads to higher levels of stress hormones and cortisol. And, um, and when we have high levels of cortisol, we're at higher risk for things like anxiety, depression, um, immune problems. And uh, all of that really has a big impact on our physical health, uh, weight gain, heart disease, headaches, um, memory and concentration. So it really does, I think, um, have a wide reaching, far reaching impact on people. Some of the, um, there's been some interesting research done uh, from CAMH um, and some of them talks, it's talking about 25% of respondents, uh, women feeling depressed some or most of the week. This is since the pandemic. This is research done since May, 2020. Um, uh, respondents with children under 18 reporting higher levels. So parents, <laughs> of course, um, having to balance virtual school and right now, right, as we speak, that's sort of the climate. Uh, mm -hmm. Younger adults appear to be particularly affected and women as well. And all of that means too uh, that men are, it's men are also susceptible, right? I mean, in terms of mental health, just because, you know, uh, some of the CAMH statistics come out about this. I think there's other research that certainly points to substantial difficulties that men are facing, um, manifesting in a different way though, manifesting more in addiction and suicide. Um, males accounting for 75% of the suicides in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. And what that comes down to is about 50 per week. So, I mean, if you can just imagine, um, you know, we're, we're, we're being impacted by multiple pandemics, right? All at the same time, multiple crises and men being susceptible three times more likely to experience addiction and substance abuse. So wow. high rates of loneliness, 63% of men between the ages of 18 and 35 uh, report loneliness. Um, these are big issues. These are really big issues when we're talking about how many people are affected by this. And so um, I think it's really important to be able to talk about it and discuss it and, you know, how anxiety shows up, how depression show up um, has such significant impacts in our society right now, particularly, but certainly going back before the pandemic too. Hmm. And it's really interesting too, because when you start listing off some of those statistics and, and, you know, things that are happening, it helps people to relate. It helps people to feel like this is way more normal than we're hearing about, which is really difficult and challenging, but also potentially a source of, of feeling of normalcy for people. If they're like, you know, 
this is happening around me and I'm not the only one who's experiencing this. Absolutely. And I think that's the trick depression and anxiety play on people too, is to trick them into thinking that they are alone. And so part of talking about it, and I think, you know, even given certain initiatives that exist in our community to help to break the stigmas that exist, because this is the experience that people are having. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet when we don't dialogue and talk about it, um, it just sort of pushes it further, pushes it further down. So um, yeah, I think that's, I think it's very, very true that we can recognize how, how normal these experiences are for people and that we're actually responding in a reasonable way to something that is going on in our society. We have never at a time lived through a pandemic. I mean, maybe, you know, generations back, but we ourselves have never lived through a pandemic. And so the responses that we have are reasonable and natural. And when we're surrounded by things like death and illness in the news, we are going to respond to that. We are going to respond to losing our coping mechanisms. We are going to respond to not being able to work out at the gym and see family and connect with friends and those things that give us joy and connection in our lives. Yeah. That's huge. And just sort of, uh, we've, we've covered off a lot already just in what you've said. I really appreciate that because I think there's probably something for everyone in what you've just said. Uh, I actually, I'm curious to know, so just to clarify one thing. So the big difference for men versus women in terms of how they tend to be um, impacted in broad strokes, men more affected by the arrival of kind of addiction and suicide versus anxiety and depression. Did I catch that right? Yeah, I think, I think there are, there are, I mean, anytime we take statistics, we're making generalizations Mm -hmm. about people and there are certain um, idiosyncrasies and different stories that people have. Um, But the statistics certainly show that the problematic um, areas that women face are a bit different than for men. Uh, and the way that they surface or the way that they are expressed in people's lives are different. So uh, loneliness, depression, both groups reporting. Um, however, in terms of the suicide and the addiction piece, often more men are susceptible. There are certainly lots of women as well, but more men, three times more men uh, mm. dealing with substance and alcohol addiction. So yeah. I appreciate that clarification. Wow. It's, It's striking for sure. And so, I mean, these, we think of these topics as being personal topics, but being a a career podcast, we wanted to sort of bring this to light in a work sense. And so, you know, we are whole human beings and we're not living in a vacuum. So how are some of these things impacting us at work? Yeah, definitely. So stress affects us globally in lots of different ways. It affects our ability to concentrate, it affects our emotional exhaustion, uh, our physical fatigue, um, our changes in eating and exercising habits. It leads to social withdrawal, sleep disorders. Um, You know, if we don't get a good night's sleep, you know, how does that affect us at work? I mean, that's the foundations of many people's well-being is a good night's sleep and high cortisol levels 
make it more difficult for people to sleep. Um, so that affects memory loss. It affects um, our even response when we have a deadline, right? That like there's a greater sense of urgency or even like a greater um, activation that happens sometimes when our, you know, that if we're always on edge, right? And we're always on guard, then we're faced with something stimulating at work that creates that trigger. Um, that's, that impacts our work and it impacts our lives for sure. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So kind of like responses to the things that are happening at work can be a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Our motivation, our interest in work, itself can be impacted um, and how then we think about ourselves and our sense of self. Um, you know, I used to be like this and now I'm not. And so uh, how we think about who we are as people uh, becomes impacted by that too, right? We may feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough or I'm slacking off. And so that puts us in sort of like a shame spiral mm -hmm. of like wanting to hide and not wanting to be seen. And that becomes pretty toxic for, for, for people. Yeah. Shame spiral. I like that term. It doesn't sound very pleasant, but it definitely paints a picture that's very concrete and makes a lot of sense mm. given what people are facing these days. Mm. I have to, I have to credit. It's not mine. Uh, <laughs> it does come. It does come from the work of Brene Brown, who does a lot of work on shame and vulnerability. A lot of, um, a lot of uh, talks and discussions. And so I should credit her. <laughs> <laughs> Love Brene Brown. <laughs> so do you have any tools or strategies that you would recommend for people who are facing some of these challenges or ways to um, cope with some of these challenges that we're facing? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how much time we have. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Set up I set up an appointment with Sarah. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly if, if, if you're noting, right, that, um, that there's a lot of alarm, right, happening for you, a lot of anxiety or a lot of on edgeness, a lot of that stress response, um, then th there are some things for sure, like, really reducing the external triggers that would get some of that going. So our heart, our brains really are hardwired to react to our environment around us. So having news channels spouting, you know, statistics at us about what's happening in the, in the world and um, deaths and illnesses, you know, that can really create and continue some of that alarm. So being able to like really limit that, especially, you know, in the times before resting and trying to go to sleep, right? Thinking about those cortisol levels, removing as much notifications and distractions, right? So if concentration's a difficult thing, looking at like, how can I limit my distractions, pop-ups, emails, right? Um, and it takes like from a distraction, it takes 25 minutes to be able to come back to the original task after an interruption. That comes out of research from the University of California. So, I mean, that's a huge amount of time lost, right? If we have an interruption, a distraction. So being able to really be intentional. And I think sometimes 
there's uh, some neat research about even training our brains. So what happens in uh, stress response is that what they've done in research is um, neuroscientists have seen that people actually, their, their lower part of their brain is more activated in a stress response uh, rather than their higher part of their brain. So their prefrontal cortex, um, which is like the CEO of your brain. It's in charge of decision-making. It's in charge of planning and strategizing. Uh, but under stress, it's like that part becomes cut off, right? It's like mm -hmm. that part becomes inaccessible. And so uh, it's almost like with chronic stress, we're only utilizing this lower part of your brain, which is this um, um, kind of like automatic reaction. So that's like that fight, flight, freeze response mm -hmm. um, that we, you know, kind of hear lots about. So part of that, like changing the way your brain is structured, right? Under chronic stress, your brain starts to revert more to this lower brain function. So being able to engage the higher processes of our brain in a more intentional way, making it a game um, and even training your brain. There's like, there's one um, intervention that's talked about in like setting a timer for 45 minutes and just allowing yourself to like really focus in for a certain amount of time and then give yourself 15 minutes to just indulge in whatever mm -hmm. you want um, to be able to like allow your brain that break and just um, just soothe right during that part but then going back and doing another 45 minutes and if 45 minutes is too long then making it shorter make it 25 with a five minute break right um, but the key is to like heighten productivity really when you're noticing your mind is distracted so that's um I mean that's those are two. Um, I can keep going. Uh, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I love learning about how the brain works and how it yeah. impacts us from a productivity yeah. perspective. It's like, those are real, the 25 minutes between when you get distracted. I'm just thinking of all the distractions in my day of all the things going on. Yeah. That must be really impacting productivity. That's, that's wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, I think I sort of am in this phase where I can't really go beyond like a 45 minute block or an hour, maybe an hour long block. It depends. I mean, I can sit around and have a great podcast episode like we are having now and recording, but when I'm thinking about some of my, um, let's just say slightly less engaging to-do list items, I need that pause and I find myself out of my chair really without thinking about it. It's like, I'm going to go to the kitchen or I'm going to go down the hallway and I'm going to go look just randomly around my house and just give my brain a break. It's really yeah. quite, I'm sure if you were observing me, you would think it's a little interesting, but I think it's also really normal from what you had said earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the harder or the more unpleasant a task is, the more difficult it is sometimes to focus right it requires actually more um more brain energy so we get a hit of dopamine when something is enjoyable and something is difficult and we can see our progress and dopamine is what motivates us what feels good what feels pleasant um and so it you know I think it's very true right that if we're enjoying something we just we get engaged and we can get a natural rhythm but if things are 
feeling difficult to concentrate then I think really being mindful of that really noticing what's happening in your thoughts really noticing what those distractions are and even just noticing what takes your attention can actually be really helpful just becoming more aware um, of that cool now I just wanted to add on to that because you've got me thinking around people so initially when the pandemic started people started to think this is great I don't have a commute I'm gonna have more time to myself but now it seems that people are actually using that commute time to do more work yeah I think I think yeah some people are sort of collapsing in um or their days are collapsing right where there's less varied interactions uh there's less um, connections with others, right? Even those conversations at the water cooler or the lunchroom, right? That would be sustaining and motivating, right? If certainly if you're an extrovert. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think people are using a lot of time. And so I think being really intentional about that, having a routine is often something that's talked about as being really helpful for settling our minds and letting us know that everything's okay on sort of a subconscious level. So, you know, perhaps replacing that uh, commute time with something else, right? That cues us in, okay, now we're going to work, right? And then something that decompresses you after work can be worthwhile to look at. And of course, every person has their own responses and every person has their own individual uh, ways of managing stress. So I think that's really, I mean, it's not a one size fits all. It is really about what does it, what works for you and looking at that mm -hmm. and experimenting maybe along that. And it might be a good time for people to think back to when the pandemic started and say, what was I going to do with all this, this extra time? And can I fit that into my day? Do I want to do a 15 minute Pilates class at lunchtime? Do I want to go for a walk? And, and how can they sort of bring that more into their days? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the more pleasant it is, um, as, as we're saying before, right, the more pleasant it is, and that you can also monitor your progress. So setting really small goals, um, where you can see your progress gives you that hit of dopamine, it gives you that pleasant feeling. So I actually started picking up painting. I mean, I'm not a painter. Um, I have really very little artistic talent. But why do I do it? I do it because I can actually see my progress. I mean, I don't think they're going to be hung up anywhere other than within, you know, the walls of my home. But I can see my progress. I feel I enjoy the process of painting. And it gives me I mean, it's sustaining, right? Like it helps me cope. Um, I tried to pick up piano again, you know, like anything that really you find enjoyable where you can see pro progress in little ways can be ways to help you cope. So, so if there is something to return to, right? If, if you love yoga and just even taking five minutes, right? To do that, then that, that can, that can help for sure. Cool. I feel like you may have explained my drive to be looking at podcast statistics, maybe a little too often because it is a sign of our own progress. So maybe that explains yeah. that. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. So a couple more I would I would mention yeah. would be um, we talked we talked a little bit about vulnerability before. Um, it's really interesting actually because if you're vulnerable, at a time you sense this risk, um, and then you get a reward of feeling safe. So when people 
are faced with consistent feelings of it not being safe, right? In our mm-hmm. world, um, when there's a higher sense of risk associated with so much, taking time to be vulnerable with someone in a really intentional way can forge a bond, right? Create intimacy, create trust. Um, so being intentional maybe about who you're vulnerable with, right? Looking at like who is a trusted loved one that I could share something with and we could, you know, uh, we could share with each other, right? And forge that intimacy, that trust, that hit of positivity and connectedness. Um, and interestingly, even if there isn't a specific person that comes to mind, right? Even just taking a risk, like dancing on your front lawn, right? Or doing something that has some sense of vulnerability to it, but also will give you that hit of sort of like safety. Maybe you don't know exactly who will be around or, you know, what the certain, um, what the situation will be, but that can also create sort of that positivity, that connectedness, that sense of, I did that thing and I'm safe. So, uh, so I'm okay. (laughs) Um, It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we talked about routines. We talked about, I mean, I think another part of that is connecting to that higher order brain, right? Reflecting. I mean, if you've ever um, thought about journaling and, you know, haven't done that, right? Anything that sort of allows you to reflect, get tap into those higher order mental processes allows you to, um, to also work in this different space of your brain too. So that can be, that can be valuable. Yeah. That is so cool. There's been a lot of insight in this episode already and we're just kind of getting warmed up. It's (laughs) a fairly data-driven conversation so far. And so I'm curious to know, based off of this, there was a recent survey done here in Canada with Morneau Chappelle. 3,000 Canadians were asked uh, some questions around their own careers And the survey indicated that 24% of our working population has considered or is in the process of executing some kind of a a significant career transition right now or has been throughout the pandemic. Have you found in your work that people are a little bit more open to making major life changes at the moment? I think there is a large number of people considering and looking at options reevaluating, you know, the cost benefit analysis of where they are at, where their job is at. Um, I do see a lot of people evaluating that. And I also see alongside that a lot of people feeling stuck um, Mm. in terms of, you know, what are the, what are the options? For example, if someone's in thinking about switching to an industry that right now is struggling or in lockdown, right? Or not hiring that may limit their, um, yeah, limit their options or limit their desire to, to switch industries. I think some people are really, I mean, certainly frontline workers being burnt out, feeling, um, yeah, feeling stuck, you know, and maybe financial obligations or finance, uh, financial obligations or family obligations that are sort of keeping them where they're at. Um, so I certainly do see a lot of people considering it. Uh, I do wonder what's going to happen after the pandemic, after things you know do start opening up a little bit more, whether 
when those opportunities are there, whether there will be some more, um, you know, migration between uh, fields and occupations. So, yeah. To be, to be determined for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious. Now, when we, when we talk about mental health, a word that often comes up and it's a bit of a buzzword in a lot of different spaces, wellness and all that kind of stuff is self-care. So what does self-care mean in a psychotherapy context? Yeah, great question. I think, I mean, I guess it can mean so much to so many different people. Um, for, for me, the way that I like to think of it is really prioritizing the things that lead to long-term well-being. So not the things that are short-term pick-me-ups pick or splurges or treats, mm. right? But, uh, but practices that in a genuine way nourish and uh, nurture well-being. So I think when you think about, I mean, I think there are things that can also not be so pleasant at the time, right? Things like having a nutritious diet, um, you know, exercise, creative pursuits, sleep, meditation. We haven't talked about meditation as being such a, you know, breath as being so fundamental for relaxation and for helping regulate I think the practice of self-compassion fits with this. Uh, I think when we certainly see our output decrease and see us face challenges and thinking, you know, this is so, I think the self-criticizing part can hop in and say like, what's the big deal? This isn't, you know, I'm okay. I have a house or, you know, my kids are healthy. You know, th this, this self-critical part really downplays or minimizes the challenges that we're facing. So I think self-compassion here looks like being able to really acknowledge that some things are difficult and then being able to um, have empathy towards ourselves in that, just as we would for a friend, you know, I think we sometimes are more critical towards ourselves. I think self-care is about cultivating healthy relationships and also showing compassion and recognizing we're constrained here, aren't we? Like we're living with the same people day in and day out. And I, you know, I certainly um, experience that myself. We, ha I have two beautiful daughters and a husband and we're together all the time and we're not <laughs> used to being together all the time. And so there are, there is conflict that is going to develop and show up in those spaces. And so being able to uh, to recognize, okay, yeah, that lower part of my brain is hooking me in to reacting to being impulsive. And so I've got to work on reflecting here, I've got to work on taking space and breathing, and, um, and not thinking, you know, that everything should be easy, or everything should be intuitive, right? That this, this is hard work. This is hard work. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. I want to highlight that distinction just for a minute that you made there of the, the short-term gain versus the longer-term well-being. Because I think that that is a huge mindset shift for me, even when I think about it. It, it is, it's, it's not something that's going to give you necessarily an immediate, like going for a mani-pedi, which, you know, could be part of it if that's an ongoing routine, but it is sort of interesting to think about. Yeah. Never really, never really thought about it as, as concretely as it being 
a system or a series of things that you might do on a regular basis, as opposed to a, a one and done kind of thing, yeah. like we've talked about. That's I really think interesting. that's exactly it. Like it's, it's a set of practices um, and any practices that we have, you know, when we start out, they're going to feel difficult and unfamiliar maybe. Um, but certainly it, it is a set of practices, something that we have to keep at to be able to reap the reward of it. How can staff managers support their employees better? Well, yeah, I think, I think one is not thinking of them as employees, right? But thinking of them as people who have lives, who have stressors, who have things going on that they might not be talking about. Um, so <clears throat> there are some practices, I think, in terms of like checking in. Um, we talked about, you know, Brene Brown a little bit and, um, just, I think one of the things they do, you know, is do a check-in at the beginning of every staff meeting and just say, what's going on? How are you doing? How are you feeling? And being able to see the personal side. Um, I think managers can, especially within a team, can build some camaraderie or some friendships, even a personal side within teams, knowing that right now, uh, people have pretty limited social contact. <laughs> and if they get a boost of that connection, it is, you know, it is helpful for feeling safe and secure and being able to concentrate and be productive, right? And uh, I think being vulnerable and also a relatable role model, right? Being approachable, saying, um, you know, asking your staff, and soliciting ideas from them. What do you need? How can we be a team? How can we connect? Uh, and a lot of workplaces have EAP programs that allow people to tap into resources for mental health and being aware as a manager, like what is that number or where do you get those resources? What is the plan that is available through your workplace? is really helpful for people because it gives them something tangible to and a, and a place to start for sure too. So on the flip side, what type of support should employees be asking for? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And so much of it depends on the relationship that you have with your direct manager. If that's, you know, sort of a place of support and trustworthiness, then you will be able to talk about those informal supports. Um, if it's a if it's a manager that you know there isn't that relationship, there, some of the other options are looking at those peer relationship, reaching out again to those like lunchroom connections or water cooler connections and being able to develop those and just reach out in those informal ways. So in terms of a more formal accommodations, talking to a physician if there are significant barriers for mental health, uh, being able to ask for those accommodations and knowing what your rights are, knowing what, you know, what do I need to share with my employer and what can I ask? And I think that overall willingness to be able to ask for what you need, right? And recognizing this is a normal process. People are facing uh, challenges and difficulties. So being able to ask for what you need, I think is a really important part here too. It's uh, It sounds like there's an opportunity for employees to kind of think about how they can empower themselves because it sounds like there are more resources out there than what a lot of people think 
Would you say that's true? Yeah, I, th I think there are some resources out there. Um, I think there's not enough to meet the real demand that's there. I, you know, certainly working in mental health, there are constraints, there is fragmentation within the system. Um, but I think, uh, I think knowing even where you can go can also be very empowering and to be able to take a step in that direction can, can really help too. So we've talked a, a bit about this idea so far in the conversation. It's a, so a term that's kind of come up in some recent recordings of the show, this principle or idea of VUCA. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And this is sort of the set of adjectives that are describing the world now and kind of we're also describing the world even before the pandemic what are your thoughts on how this may affect working people sort of in the long term as we look past the pandemic and mental health? Well, each of these are so toxic to mental health over the long term. Um, you know, volatility requires us to adapt and adapt fast. <laughs> um, you know, when it comes to uncertainty, if we're faced with so, well, when, when we're faced with something that's certain, uh, we can select a strategy and we can move and we can act on it. And that gives us a reward. But when we have a stress response, our amygdala, you know, kicks in our sympathetic nervous system and we get this whole set of stress responses. And we know that stress responses over time really create a lot of challenges for, for people. So uh, long term, you know, I think being really aware of it, talking about it, building, um, building a conversation, a dialogue is really helpful. Uh, just because these things exist in our world does not mean that we have to give in to them, right? And we can become more aware, we can dialogue, we can take steps to create certainty, of course, like even thinking about if I'm faced with many uncertain events in my life, I can really start to delineate where do I have control versus where do I not have control? And that may be that sort of practice of saying, okay, where do I have control? And then being able to remind ourselves when faced with uncertainty, I think practicing gratitude, cultivating trust, finding meaning, all of these things allow us to work on um, fighting volatility, you know, all of these things, uncertainty, am ambiguous, you know, the more that things are ambiguous, uh, the more energy it takes for us to think about it, the more complex. So recognizing the drain that it has within us and on us too is is important and then being able to replenish that, right? So if we are drained, then looking at what can recharge me, what can help me when I'm drained. Cool. Yeah. We're not we're not robots, that's for sure. We have to make sure that we are showing up as as humans, which sometimes means being at our best and sometimes being at less than our best. Yeah. I appreciate those comments. Cool. We have some questions that we like to ask of all of the guests that we have on the show. Um, and the first one of those is what is the most fun you've had in your career, Sarah? Yeah, I think 
Uh, I love teaching workshops. <laughs> uh, I do get a lot of joy out of that. Um, and I do get a lot of joy out of seeing paradigm shifts, experiencing paradigm shifts with people. And um, I, you know, I get that pang of excitement when somebody says, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And they are, they're doing their own processing. So, I mean, um, mental health isn't considered to be necessarily, you know, the funnest <laughs> occupation. Um, but I think there's a lot of joy. I think there's a lot of joy in change. There's a lot of joy in, um, yeah, in, in being in this, in this space too. So. Totally. Yeah. Amazing. You can tell by the way that you talk about it, just that something that seems extremely energizing for you. What would you say is the biggest risk you've ever taken in your career and how did that turn out? Well, the biggest risk was to open a private practice and um, time will tell, I guess, how it turns out. Um, it's It's been stretching. It's been uh, incredible. I've learned so much about a business that I didn't know and I'm still learning about how to run a business. That wasn't my, um, uh, that I didn't start this to open a, a business that wasn't my first idea this is I'm running the business to, to be able to do the work so mm -hmm. that's um yeah that that feels risky all the time so <laughs> awesome though what's the best piece of career advice that you have ever received so the best piece I can think back to was um my supervisor from one of my jobs when I was just starting out as a therapist um, said, you know, combine your strengths and skills with the needs of the world. And that has been so grounding for me to be able to say, okay, you know, what is the need that exists in the world? And then what are my skills and strengths and how do I, how do I match that up? Such Love a it. great one. Yeah. yeah. We, we will one day string together all of the answers that we've received for that question. And it'll just be like a standalone file that people can buy for, you know, $49 on eBay or something like that, <laughs> whatever. No, I'll, but buy it's it. always I'll buy it. Awesome. We appreciate <laughs> you sharing it for sure. Yeah. So where can people find out more about you and your work? So, uh, online at, uh, SL therapy, uh, dot ca so s letter s silver linings therapy um and i'm on instagram and facebook <laughs> as well uh i say that with a bit of trepidation but i am there so <laughs> excellent it has been really educational just having this conversation with you i know i've learned a lot today and i'm sure that's probably true for our dear listener as well so thank you so much for your time yeah thank you yeah, thank you. We'll call it a week at that for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Go check out Sarah Johnson and her work and look after yourself. We are here for you. Don't be strangers. Be well, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. Are you a student, new grad, or young professional looking for some help in your early career transition? Then you'll probably find value in reading Take Flight, my weekly Sunday newsletter designed to help young job seekers land work faster and grow their careers. You can subscribe to the newsletter by going to coachwazo.com slash subscribe. That's C-O-A-C-H-O-I-S-E-A-U dot com slash subscribe.